Welcome, everybody, to a holiday edition of Smith & Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. And, Jones, we thought it would be nice for at least the second last show, and, heck, maybe the last two shows. We'll see how it looks next week, folks. But for this edition, as we roll through the holidays and for those that celebrate Christmas, we wanted to do a best of Smith & Jones. Look back at 2023 and a best of Raptor interviews. We were very fortunate over the course of the last 12 months from the fabulous work that we had from our producers, Mark Boffo and Austin Mackey, and all the crew that brings Smith & Jones together, reaching out to various players of past and present from Raptor history. We had a ton of guys join us over the course of the last 12 months and thought it would be fun here to look back to some of the top moments, some of the top interviews, some of the top conversations we had with some of your favorite Raptors, folks, over the years. And we'll start this off, maybe, Jonesy, with Amir Johnson. This goes back to January 12th. Heck, I remember the interview like it was just a couple of months ago, and it's already been almost a full calendar year since we hooked up with Amir Johnson. Amir, when I, when I put together a list in my mind of, of guys that embraced this city and all it had to offer, and not just this city but this country, um, you got to be like if you're not at the top of the list, you're certainly in the top three, top five. And and I, and I wonder now, looking back, kind of in hindsight, Amir, and I know you've chatted about this over the years before as well. But what was it about the city, the organization, the fan base that just kind of sparked something in you where you wanted to be more than just a player? You actually wanted to be part of the community. First of all, wow! Just just hearing that, man. Just a, a top three, top five guy all time in Toronto, man, that is, um, I'm honored. Um, just, just my personality, man, just me, um, being a guy that loves to give back, being a community guy, um, going to a different country. I just, I just felt that I just wanted to embrace it and know everything about Toronto, Canada, all around. And, um, it, it, it was just, I, I guess it was just in me. It was just my personality, how I was raised. Um, grew up going to uh, community centers, going to the YMCA, going to Boys, Girl, Boys and Girls Club, um, seeing how they, they help guys, help kids, get people, you know, off the streets where they, they're, they're coming after school and, and be able to do some curricular activity. And I, I grew up that way. And, and my parents did a great job. Um, the boys and girls I used to go to were probably like, it was, they were so far from, from where we lived at. I don't know how my parents got me there, but they did. And it, it was just my personality. And um, I'm glad Toronto embraced me and I was able to just go around the city anywhere. And everybody was like, hey, I'm here. You know, love what you're doing. It was, it, was, it was just awesome. My years are awesome out there. I loved it, man. Best city I played in my whole career. Amir, it sure sounds like you're paying that forward now. You were telling us a little bit off mic, off air, uh, what you were doing. Can you get into that and let people know that you know, like your parents, you're, you know, you're you're helping people and you're you're kind of paying it forward, man. So during my time playing, I've always had uh, my nonprofit. Um, it's a five hundred one c three nonprofit, which is called stands for education youth sports um I, when i was playing i haven't had a chance to fully focus on it because i was focused on winning a championship but i had my partner just kind of do his due diligence and do everything right you know when i'm finally excelling retired and now um, um, i catch myself 
you know, at home in front of the computer, you know, um, working a lot and, and trying to get this thing up and running. So we've um, here in Las, I live in Las Vegas. So here in Vegas, we are in the midst of building a community center. And so far, we we have our sponsors, and we have the land, we have the site, and I'm I'm super excited about this. And it, it's in the midst of going up, and then we 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 basically we believe in, in the need of just mentoring the youth in, in in programs and to just get kids. Sure, they have computers to sit at. Make sure they do thirty minutes of homework and bow they straight to curricular, whether it's football, baseball, basketball. We're we're, we're pretty much going to have everything at this community center, and it's all going to be indoor too, since it's Vegas. Because you know Vegas is like. A thousand degrees, <laughs> but um, this is a, a project uh, I've always had deep in my heart and mind. As you can see, I've always been in the community, and it's something I've always wanted to do. And I'm I'm, I'm definitely um, going to get it started. Hopefully by 2024, 20, 2025. Hopefully sooner than later. So it's something I've been working on. And at the same time, I've actually been a player development coach uh, here with Ignite. League team, which I played on for the last two years, and now I moved to player coach to, to player development, uh, still helping guys that that were basically in my position as a 18 year old kid first coming into the NBA, knowing how to deal with on the court stuff and off the court stuff just by experience. So um, it, it's pretty fun just finding stuff that um, you're passionate about, you know, especially. Um, you know, after career basketball, and um, it, it really just takes on, on just getting out there, collecting business cards, meeting those season ticket holders that that, that come to the Raptors games, and, and just starting something and being an entrepreneur yourself. Hey, Amir, I want to go back to to your upbringing then as as a kid. Did you have anything close to or even resembling? what you're now trying to do for the youth in, in Vegas in the area was, was there a, whether it be a coach or a teacher, was there a community center? Was, was it your parents? Was it an aunt or an uncle? Was there somebody or somewhere that you were able to attach to beyond just what you were doing in school or on the court where you could go as a, as a safe haven if you wanted to, or as a place to, to learn and extend yourself even further? Like where did this nugget come from? And, and, and like I say, did you have something like that? Well, the the first person I've ever seen in California do something in the community was Magic Johnson. Magic, he had well the street I lived on was Crenshaw and Washington, and that that's basically that that's really in the hood in, in California. But what he did is it, it, built these Magic Johnson theaters, uh, TGIF Fridays, uh, 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 um, a 24-hour uh, workout facility, and I was just like, wow, that's just that was just unbelievable to me. Like, you know, a player would actually go in the hood and just build these, these centers in these communities that, 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 that we can go to. So that was like my first time actually seeing that, you know, growing up from where I live. But um, where I went to is everything was pretty much so separated. Like these community centers were pretty much not in the hood. We had to drive out far to kind of go to like a boys and girls club, or we had to, drive a little bit somewhere else to find like a YMCA. So I used to go like to wait, way to Pasadena from where we're from. And that's probably like maybe 20 miles from where we are. And 
my parents just used to drive me there. Um, a guy named Tracy Murray had a, a basketball team there in that Boys and Girls Club, and I played for his basketball team uh, in that facility. My parents just used to drive me off and, and just entrusted me with the guys there, the staff, and I used to just have a ball. I didn't have to leave that place. I had everything there. They had arcades, video games, swimming pool, um, whatever you can ask for help for, for homework and that's where I was. That's where I was. That was kind of like my safe haven as a kid. You know, I used to go down there and just kind of be do do all my work, and all my parents really had to worry about is just getting me, picking me up, and getting me to bed. So that was, um, I think that was one of the things that really helped me out. You know, as a as a kid, and then of course my my parents were there, had my back twenty four seven, and and just seeing that as a community, seeing guys actually build. You know these community centers or these movie theaters would just just kind of just brighten my eyes up. Like, man, I, I want to do that. You know, if I ever like, that's what I wanted to do. And I always had a vision in my head growing up. Amir is coaching in your future, like NBA coaching. I, I think it is because I just like I like helping. Um, just just coaching with the the younger guys i think i think i do a great job because i was again i was exactly in their shoes so it's just kind of natural for me just to kind of tell them certain ways we actually have a guy too on the team uh leonard miller he's from scarborough so i i i, I really, really mentor him a lot he's about 6'11 he's a good kid um i think that part just of, of Telling these young kids, you know, you know, what I had to do to get to your position, that part I, I, I genuinely really enjoy, and um, I might I might see it in the future. I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm working on the exes and O's. I'm working on how to break down film, drawing plays. I'm, I'm catching myself going to like every basketball game possibly, like JUCO, J- high school, JV, whatever the case may be. So I'm watching. It's funny, I'm watching a lot more basketball than I do when I used to play. <laughs> so um, that's that's the part I'm running on. Um, so far, I know I know I, I definitely want to help in the community. I know I can do that. But the coaching part, I definitely, maybe in the future, I can probably start coaching. But so far, player development is, is, is my area right now. Awesome hearing from Amir Johnson. Again, that was back on January 12th, 2023, talking about becoming a fixture in the Toronto community. Man, I, I don't know about you, but what stands out to me, Jonesy, I know we talked about the whole role with Amir, but when he was doing that, uh, like the Michael Jackson thriller dance, uh, you know, down Young Street with a bunch of people dressed up like zombies and stuff doing the zombie walk in Toronto, like, I mean, you name it, he was involved and he was active in the community so often. Uh, I, I love Amir's spirit in terms of, being community-minded and giving back. And you look at it right now, he was the last high school player drafted into the NBA, and now he's a coach and helping some of the young players who are on the come-up uh, you know, in, in, in the G League. So uh, good for Amir. It's always great to hear from him. Uh, well, another guy that was maybe not as active, and I don't mean that in a negative sense. I'm sure he did a lot of community stuff. Um, but T.J. Ford. But the reason I bring up community was he got a real taste of the community right away. When he came to Toronto, he reported to the Raptors during the summer during 
Caravana. And yes, I'm calling it Caravana because that's what it was called back then. Either way, whatever we want to call it, the festival that it is now, it's always going to be Caravana, Jonesy. And what an indoctrination to the city of Toronto. If you're coming during Caravana, man, you might never want to leave. Well, definitely. And TJ Ford, like you said, got the full force of it coming in at that time. All right, let's hear from TJ Ford. This conversation earlier this year on April 6, 2023, as we continue with the best of Smith and Jones. You know, when you look back on your time in Toronto, TJ, what stands out? If there's one or two memories that stand out more than any, what kind of comes front of mind for you? <laughs> well, the first thing is getting traded and coming doing your physical, doing Carabana. So that was that was like great. <laughs> that was a great introduction to Toronto. I tell you that. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, for my time, that was being able to partner up with one of my really good friends at that time was Chris Bosch and. You know, coming to Toronto when I was with the Bucks, we used to always go to go to Muse. I think that was the name of it, the Jamaican spot with the jerk chicken. Yep. I mean, so yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, during that time, I mean, he was a huge advocate of, of, of me getting traded coming to Toronto, and you know, obviously we had two stellar, stellar, stellar seasons there together. So I think my experience is just connecting with with another Texas guy and uh, Chris Bosch and, and watching our careers uh, take off. TJ, you talked about your introduction. I've always teased the, uh, the the Players Association said if you want perfect attendance at your meeting, have it Carabana weekend in Toronto. But um, uh, the the Carabana part aside, what caught you most about Toronto? Like you said, you're a guy from Texas. Before we even came on mic here, we were talking about you know the nuances of Toronto, the weather and stuff like that. What what caught you initially? Uh, even even away from that weekend, that's a great weekend, but that's like a recruiting weekend. It's not always like that. But but what caught you? What catches you most when you come? I mean, look, the people in Toronto is just unbelievable. It's, I mean, it's the same southern feel that you have when you here in the state of Texas. I think when you look at you know the culture, so many different nationalities sharing their their culture and experience with one another. I think it makes it a city very very cool and very awesome to be a part of because. You have different nationalities just all over the place eating and, uh, you know, just sharing their culture with each other. That's that's not really how it typically is in the, in the southern region. So I think for me, the food was excellent. Um, the people were great. And then when it comes to the basketball aspect coming into the arena, you know, you had a big diverse of age groups at games. It, it, it was, wasn't was an older crowd. It was, I mean, you had an older crowd, you had a young crowd, you had, you know, kids. So I think you had a mixture of um, in the atmosphere in the arena that was just electrifying for us to be able to play and perform. Hey, TJ, let me ask you about that in, in coming to Toronto specifically and as you talk about that relationship that you had, that friendship that you had with Chris. Not that you didn't have guys that you were close with in Milwaukee as well, but when you come into the league for the first time, and I would say this to anybody, to, to any rookie player in any sport for that matter, but you come in at, you know, Naismith Player of the Year and, and – Wooden Award winner and and Sporting News Player of the Year and all the accolades, a top ten pick, and then suddenly you go from being a college dude to a pro and away from home and living in a different city and all the the adjustments that come with being now a professional. Was it easier now that you had a few years under your belt and now you've got one of your closest dudes with you in Toronto as opposed to when you first burst in with the Bucks? I mean, with the Bucks, my mentor was Sam Cassell, so my transition to Milwaukee was easy because that was a guy I spent my entire summer with. So, right. 
you know, he had everything kind of lined up for me and, and kind of gave me the land of the, you know, the lay of the land. So I, I think for me, my transition from city to city was very, very, very easy. You know, I wasn't a guy who did too much. I always was going to stay close to the, you know, the arena or practice facility. So my adjustments was never, never, never hard. I've been traveling my whole life as a, as a kid. So uh, for me personally, uh, adjusting is, is pretty pretty easy for me. I just need two weeks and then I, I'm pretty much going to learn the city and, you know, know where to go and, and, and where to get to. DJ, talk to me about your locker room back then. You know, there was there was a lot of, uh, like you said, there was, there was a lot of diversity in the city. But how did the, how was the locker room? What was, what were, what were your teammates like when you look back and you reflect? I mean, it's sometimes hard when you're in the moment, but you know, it's been a while now. You step back. Like there, there had to have been some things about that locker room that you you really liked or you really kind of treasured. We had a great locker room. I mean, look, I just had lunch with Russell and Starevich who came in town um, two days ago, and that I'll see again here in the, you know the next forty-eight hours to have dinner in Dallas. So, you know, when you look at Jose Calderon, a guy that uh, we worked uh, with the. MBPA uh, for the past few years until he just moved on um, into the front office role. So a lot of these, Mo Pete, we still talk and visit each other. Um, so I have a lot of guys just from that Anthony Park I see all the time. That's a, you know GM with the Lando Magic. So you know, that that team, that locker room for me is you know a lot of these guys. We're still really cool. We're still close and we still keep in contact. So we had a great locker room with these guys. <laughs> Speaking with TJ Ford, I, I saw that picture that you posted with Rosh. I hadn't seen him in a while. And he, other than a few more gray hairs, which we all have, TJ, he still looks the same right. to me, man. It's, it's it was right. it was great to see him. Oh, it's awesome to see him. I mean, it's been man, maybe ten years I haven't seen Rosh party. Wow. And uh, we've been trying to figure out how to you know find time for me to even go visit him in his country with my family. So, I mean, he's been a dear friend and. You know, we shared a lot of amazing times together with his family and my family. TJ, talk to me about your transition. Um, you know, you, you can tell the, our, our listeners some of the stuff that you've been you've been doing. You were telling Eric and I off mic, but um, you know, the cheering stops at some point, and you get into other things. Talk to us about your transition and kind of what's going on now with you. You know, my my transition. I mean. I, Coming into the NBA, you know, ultimate goal is to play 15 plus years. But the reality is, of my career, I, I, I knew it was going to be a stretch to me to make it that far. So I was able to get, you know, a good nine years out of it. And so I always had in the back of my mind I was going to have to do something else, and I was going to, you know, stop, stop bouncing from me. So, um, man, I just came home, and the guys that I uh, that was training with me throughout the summer on my runs, these guys allowed me to kind of become their trainers. James Posey, the Charlotte Lewis's, the Chuck Hayes, and can name quite a few more guys that just allowed me to become their trainer since I already had the, the setup. And from there, I just got back involved with, with some young kids and just felt like I could make a, a big difference in their lives and got involved with youth sports and uh, been doing it ever since. Again, that conversation with TJ Ford from back on April 6, 2023. And you can't really have a conversation with or about TJ Ford without bringing up his friend, his teammate, but a guy that he had a healthy competition with as well. No doubt about it, Jonesy Jose Calderon. 
Yeah, and, and you know, it, it, it's funny because uh, it seemed like part of the fan base felt that the two were so polarizing. It was one or the other, when in fact the two of them never had any of those, uh, you know, discrepancies, never had any of that, uh, you know, outward rivalry. Yeah, it was always as teammates, you're pushing each other, there's organic growth, there's a kind of a healthy togetherness and a rivalry like, hey, I'm pushing you, you're pushing me, he's playing well, I better go in and play well. But um, yeah, they, they, were, they were a good tandem when they were together in Toronto. Well, we had a chance to chat with Jose Calderon, one of the fan favorites, and we asked him about that very thing. Why do you think the fans took to you so much? That was one of the topics, among others, that we chatted with Jose about back when we had him on Smith & Jones on January 26, 2023. What do you think it was, Jose, about you, the way you played, your personality? What was it that you think drew you to the fan base so much and the fan base drew themselves to you as well? Yeah, I mean, I think it was. I think it goes both ways. Um, I think the way I arrived, uh, maybe in the time that I arrived to the team, um, I think they understood what I or who I was from the beginning. So I felt really comfortable on, like, you know, I was there to learn from my language, from English to to basketball. And I think it's kind of like I grew up um, uh, with the city. So I think the fans, I, I guess, they felt that way that you know I was always putting the team first. Um, and that's that's the love and the uh, that I you know feel for for the city still, and, and, and that I feel from you know from the fans that some or a lot of them kind of like grow up with me as well. You know, as a kid, I was maybe the first guy who who was there running the the, the in the point guard position, and you know, and, and a lot of those guys you know now are the ones who got those jerseys and talk about uh, Jose Calderon uh, as a Raptor player. Jose, we've always had or seemingly always had issues with some of the American guys coming to Canada. It just seemed to be for a long time an issue uh, with their families or they just felt they were going to another country. As an international player and traveling the world, playing in all these different countries, did you kind of have this feeling when you came to Canada looking at your American teammates and the Americans who maybe didn't like or didn't know Toronto as much? Did you kind of have, how much did you have this feeling that, hey, what's the big deal? It's a great city. Like, how much did you take that on and try to show them? Because you had, you had seen the world as a basketball player. Yeah, and I think it's always two ways of looking at things. Um, we always kind of look at what we used to it and we always look to the negative part of being in a different country or you can take the positives. And for me, it was that approach from the beginning. So, yes, I saw like they, they don't have the same restaurants here. They don't have this here. I mean, yeah, there is other amazing things that you don't have in the U.S. And you got to adjust to what you have and, and make the best out of it. So for me, it was that. I mean, yes, I miss Spain. Yes, I miss my friends, a different kind of culture, but I think that was another challenge as well. And it's a, a challenge that I was willing to to take on and, and be ready and, and have fun uh, doing it. Um, and that was, uh, it's been, it has been my approach, but not only because Canada was a different country. Every time I was switching teams, in every city, the, the, the life is different. The culture is different. It's not the same living in LA than living in New York or living in uh, Detroit. And you just adjust. So it's not about the country. It's about how you approach those changes and uh, and that's what i felt like for me it was an opportunity to to live in a multicultural uh, city 
that really you know helped me a lot from the beginning. Jose, it's interesting you, you say that because I love <laughs> Jonesy. I, I'm pretty sure you'll back me on this. I love that it's coming from you and not from myself or from Paul because one of the things we've talked about for years in doing post game shows and interacting with fans and whatnot is that it isn't necessarily the city. It's the opportunity to win. It's the comfort with the organization. It, you know, and, and the reason I bring that up, Jose, we've talked so many times over the years about it's cold in Boston, it's cold in Chicago, but it didn't seem to matter to Larry Bird, to Michael Jordan. It's nice, beautiful weather in Orlando. But how long have the Magic been a team that has struggled? And hopefully they're starting to turn things around now. For years, for years, Golden State was not a place that people wanted to go. Suddenly... They started winning. They started winning championships. People wanted to go to Oakland, to San Francisco. So it really does come down to what you were just talking about, the fit being the right thing. So whether, as you said, Detroit or you know Toronto or Cleveland or wherever, what's the fit and what's the opportunity to win as opposed to weather and all the other intangibles, right? Totally, totally. And I think at the end of the day, uh, that's why it's so important, the culture that you create in your team, uh, the chemistry, the atmosphere that's around the team. I think that's why, you know, most teams are, you know, uh, taking care of, like, uh, I think it's better to have an amazing organization all around because I think that is more important than anything else. Yes, you can have, like you say, the best weather in the world, but at the end of the day, if you're not great as an organization, one, you know, want to win, and, you know, people are going to realize that they prefer to be somewhere else. Uh, you guys are with the team most of the time, so how much stuff can I do during the season in a great weather city than I can do in Toronto. Like, you know, we travel a lot, we practice, we go back home, uh, we got another game, we fly the game. So there is no, like, you have a ton of, you know, of time that you can spend going, I don't know, to the beach uh, or something like that. So so I think it's, it's come down to uh, being a good place where they like you, where you are a fit, where you can help to win a championship and win games. And I think that is more important than anything else right now. Jose, you were here through the good and the bad. Um, when did you feel that things were going to change? I know that, you know, the management changed with Brian Colangelo and, and the coaching change with, with, with Sam uh, and all. Like, you saw it go from really bad to all of a sudden we're in the playoffs. And we were right there with a team like, like New Jersey. That one year, I still remember, Jose, if that pass of yours is a little higher on that lob on the entry, a little higher to CB, to Bosch, maybe things are a little bit different. I, that, one, that one really kind of sticks, sticks in my mind. But talk to me about the change you saw over the course of your time here with the organization when you went from a team that, yeah, people did, maybe didn't respect to all of a sudden now you're a playoff team. Yeah, and I think it was about just being patient and, and adding the right people and the right kind of players that they were willing to, to, to put the team first and. And after, it's like, you know, we have great guys to build around, you know, and you got a Chris Boss guy who, who was getting better every year, and that makes things, you know, it, it, it was making things easier for everyone. So I think it was about that. I think it was about uh, a little bit, you know. You, it's tough to just change a team or a culture from one year to another. You've got to go step by step. But I think we were doing the right steps, and it was, it was that. It was adding the right personalities, the right, the right people, and, and that's how we were growing, and, we were playing a better basketball, and I really felt like the the fans were uh, feeling that too, and they were part of the process. And I know this, this process war is uh, <laughs> is kind of like everywhere now, but 
But I think it is, it is what it is. It's just uh, you're going, you're going, and you're going to have the, some bad years or, or not so good year in a winning uh, column. But that doesn't mean you're not improving. Jose, let me just ask you kind of a big picture philosophical thing. And, and I want to be clear. I'm not necessarily talking about your current role with the Cavaliers, more just as a, as a, as a, as a player, as a fan of the game. When you step back yeah. and, 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 and sort of look at it big picture, would you – everybody wants to win a championship, whether you're a fan cheering for it, whether you're a player actually competing for it. Would you take the one championship in a decade in a 20-year span and struggling to climb that hill again? Or would you take maybe you never win the championship, but you're in the playoffs – every year 10 straight years eight out of 10 years you're in there you're in a first round you're in a conference finals you're competing you're right on the brink and even though you never really punch through you're always at the dance you always have a chance how do you kind of see that in terms of approaching it whether it be as a player as management as a fan you know going for it and always competing or you know just having that maybe one short window in time but then struggling many other years I mean, a championship is uh, Eric is so hard to to come by. I mean, championships are is well, how much work you got to put uh, to stay there. So that that's tough to even if we all want to compete every year. But if you're telling me we're gonna be there all the time and not winning, I maybe have to take the championship. <laughs> and after trying to do it sometime uh, ever because it's so hard, you got to put so many pieces got to be in place from management to the team to coach to everybody who work around the organization so and, and at the end of the day like if you start looking at what the raptors did that maybe just because maybe the, the team is you know uh it was good for a, for, for a few years and after it was bad and, uh, and good again and after you get a championship and now you are in a, a couple of years where you're not that good uh, i don't know if, if guys want to prefer to be in every time in the playoff but i'm not getting that that championship i think it's tough to to take that away, even if you're going to take another 12 years to win another one, um, it is tough. It is tough not to win, um, you know, but, but I mean, uh, it is tough to, to question, but, uh, but I would say like a championship, you know, even if you got to struggle when you do it once, I think you got the right um, ingredients or, or knowledge to know how to do it again. And now you just got to be patient to, to, to being able to do it. That was our conversation with Jose Calderon from back in January of 2023. We will continue rolling with the best of Smith & Jones. Going to step aside for a quick break, but when we come back, you will hear from Del Curry, Charlie Villanueva, and the Junkyard Dog, Jerome Williams. Folks, make sure you subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcast: Google, Apple, Spotify, or otherwise. Download, subscribe, rate, and review. We'll be back in a moment with our best of Smith & Jones edition. Welcome back to the holiday edition of Smith & Jones, the best of Smith & Jones edition. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Again, subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, or otherwise. Download, subscribe, rate, and review. You already heard from TJ Ford, Jose Calderon, uh, Amir Johnson. But, Jonesy, when we think about Raptor history, it's hard to not think about that moment in time not just when Vince Carter first came to town or, unfortunately, when Vince Carter left town and that, that trade that we all want to forget about, but that special moment, those couple of years where the Raptors finally made it into the playoffs, then they made it into the second round, then they were that close to going to a conference finals, 
and one of the guys that was a veteran piece, one of the glue pieces for those teams, Del Curry. Free agents only go selected places. And, like, if we go back to that time, that was quite something for you to come to a place where sometimes nobody wanted to come to. Yeah. And and you came and made a huge difference here. Well, it, let me back up and tell you how, how it actually happened. First, uh, the, the lockout year, um, I remember they, they signed Benny Del Negro after they Milwaukee signed me. He got a little bit more coin than I did, so I, I didn't like that too much. I thought, okay, all right, whatever. So we finished the year, and they go, all right, we want to re-sign you. I go, all right, okay. So they send we, we thought we had a deal done. They send me the contract, and there's a page missing from the contracts. So I, I call my agent. I'm like, where's page, I don't know, 14 or something. And it's like, what? I'm like, yes, it's a missing page. So he's like, we'll, we'll send it. It'll be tomorrow. In the meantime, my tailor calls me. It says, hey, coach of the Raptors, they're on the site. Long story short, because of the, the missing page in the contract, Taylor calls me, got a little bit more here. I'm like, all right, let's go north. <laughs> I was fine with it. So worked out great. Well, that's the, great. Ver- that's the version I heard and the one I told, uh, what, what 20, 23 years ago now? Yeah, yeah 23. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I came here in uh, 19, 2000, yeah. Del, when you come back into the building, and I know you've done so many times over the last 20-plus years, what kind of memories go through for you? Because, I, I, again, I'm referencing seeing Glenn. One of the things that I talk about is beyond just you and the playing days is the commercials, of course, that have been aired and, and, and spliced together. Nike and folks can find it on YouTube, and that, let alone the pictures and whatnot, yeah. seeing your two young sons playing alongside you and getting up shots and taking care of business up on the practice court that's still there up in the 300 yeah, level. Like, what yeah. goes through your mind when you it, come here? It, it's uh, it's always fun to come back. There's two buildings in the NBA that I can walk around without my credential on. <laughs> one is in <laughs> Charlotte, and it's this, the other one is this one right here. Oh. Uh, so they, they go, like, you need a credential? I'm like, I think I'm good, man. So as soon as I get <laughs> off the bus, go through security. Uh, actually, before I get through security, uh, I'm meeting a guy that I know, and he says, hey, Dale, good to be back. So it's always good to be back. One of my best friends still lives here, coming to the game tonight, have dinner with him. So it's a chance to, to see some friends that I made while I was here. Always walked around the city today just, just uh, rehashing. And, yeah, I know this, I know that. Giving uh, you know, my coworkers a little tips of where to hang out, where to go. Uh, really enjoyed my three years here. Come back every summer to visit my friend, play some golf. Um, so it's still special, special in my heart. Uh, Dell, how much of a difference do you think that made in a time when – not everybody wanted to come to Toronto, right? I, and, yeah. I, and I say this all the time, having been here from day one and watched. I mean, that was a playoff team that you eventually were part of here and, and for a few years. People don't always want to come to Toronto. They may come kicking and screaming. Yeah. But when they get here, they're right. like, hey, right. man, this is okay. How yeah. much of a difference did it, did it make that you signed as a free agent? Charles Oakley was here. Kevin Willis was here. And people are looking around saying, Wait a minute, we got some good vets that yeah. decided to go to Toronto. What's going on up there? Well, just like guys that paved the way uh, for players in the NBA right now, I, I, I like to think we paved the way for guys to come to Toronto. Um, it's a great city, great great organization, fun place to play, um, kind of the only show in town at basketball-wise. Yeah. Uh, fans are great. Um, so I had no problem, um, you know, kind of going out of the pocket and, and coming here. I knew, knew a lot of guys on the team, like you just mentioned, um, uh, very comfortable. Uh, my agent said, "Hey, it's, it's it'll be seamless." 
Uh, there's playing opportunities there. And, and, you know, I was on the tail end of my career. I played three years here. So getting a chance to, to play while I was aging uh, and helping a franchise was real important to me. So uh, I like to think that, yeah, we kind of paved the way to show guys that, hey, Toronto's a fun place to play, fun place to live. How good would Del Curry have been in this day and age when we just oh, finished we just oh. finished talking to Steve Clifford who says back in the day in the NBA you had to take a good shot every possession for well to score to be able to set up your defense now there's cross matches he said we take a lot of okay shots yeah. and when i look at your sons in particular and the way the game has changed how much would you have enjoyed playing in this era? <laughs> I would have, I would have flourished in this area uh, era right now. I mean, when I'm talking about the game, shot selection is always it, it comes across the broadcast every game uh, because of some of the suggestive shots that that happen in, in crucial parts of the game. Yeah. But the the, the three point uh, shot is just uh, uh, it's changed the game so much, and Steph had a lot to do with that, obviously. Uh, but Eric Collins, my play by play guy, he'll often say, "Hey." This this date, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you scored 20 points and took two threes. And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the game was played inside the arc. Now it's totally played outside the arc. Um, and whether you can shoot the three or not with good consistency, you're still allowed to take them. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that's, that, that blows my mind that guys that really should not be shooting <laughs> multiple threes a game – get to do it and do it every night uh, because it's what expected. Back in your day, you used to say, there's a reason why you're open, Absolutely. Right? No doubt. Absolutely. <laughs> Great catching up with Del Curry and just chatting with him about that moment, that time, signing with the Raptors. And I know we, we kind of got into it, Jonesy, and, and we've talked about it a number of times over the years, and, and you addressed it with him. But, again, it was that close, that close to going to another team, going to Milwaukee, and all of a sudden, boom, Toronto struck. And, and they struck gold in bringing in a guy like Dell to an already deep, veteran-laden team. Well, you, you know what also uh, kind of strikes me, as you said, about Dell Curry? You know, everybody thinks about uh, him being part of that team in 2001 where Vince, the graduation fiasco, and Vince had the last shot against Philadelphia. Uh, you know, we've talked about this off mic. Dell Curry had a terrific fourth quarter in that game. And I wonder now, in retrospect, as we always look back, should they have gone to Del Curry for that final shot and not Vince Carter? Mm. Just curious. Just wondering. Man, Jonesy, you got me thinking on that one. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, hey, if we can rewind history, I'd be doing a lot of things and not just that shot. But uh, I'd be hopefully a rich man right now, too. It's like back, it's like back to the future, right? You know, go back in time, and 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 then you can place all the right bets when you move forward. Uh, anyway, I digress. I mentioned the Milwaukee Bucks and and how close Dell might have come to to signing on with Milwaukee, but there's actually a tie to this conversation that we had. As uh, we'll roll on to the next one, continuing with the best of, we had a chance to hook up with Charlie Villanueva, March 23rd of this year. Uh, we we hooked up with Charlie V. hadn't chatted with him in a long time and spoke to him about his 48-point performance against the Bucks in his rookie season and a whole lot more, our conversation with Charlie V. All right, Charlie, I'm going to hit you with some history right off the top here. And, I, and, I, and I've just given, given away part of the answer or part of the little secret right here in saying that it is history. Does March 26th mean anything to you? Does that date, because we're only a couple of days away from that as we're doing this interview, but does that have any... Little, you know, any little light bulbs or any little memories popping off in your brain right now? 
I will say, was it the time uh, Toronto played Milwaukee and I scored 48? <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yep. Yep. <laughs> it was a. It was a. It was a twenty-seven and fifty-five season. It was a. It was a rough year overall. But late in the Ooh. year, I believe it was Game Seventy, if I'm not mistaken. And there you were putting up forty-eight. And and man, at that time, and even still to this day, you talk about rookie scoring highs. Like your name is among the top fifteen, ten, fifteen in history in terms of players to put up that number or those kind of numbers in your rookie season. Like, what a night. What a night that was, Charlie. Yeah, yeah. if I can remember correctly, I remember, I believe UConn was playing uh, George Mason, I believe like in the Final Four or something like that. And they ended up losing, and I was so angry. The fact that you thought, and then it so happened that I ended up taking it out on Milwaukee that night. Uh, Charlie, I, I remember being at that game, and and at one point, some people at the bench looked at us. We used to sit in the front row, calling the game. Yeah. Some people on the bench looked at us. Guys were checking in, and coaches looking at us like, "What's gotten into him? What What do you remember specifically about the game? You just told us about the circumstances, but um, yeah. I, I just remember you shaking guys down, man, and and. No matter who they put in front of you, it, it still ended up in a bucket. What do you remember about the game it, or any specifics about the game? If I can remember correctly, uh, I believe Chris Boss ended up getting hurt or something like that, and and we needed scoring. So uh, I just took it upon myself. And, you know, one of those things, man, this is what, this goes for any NBA player, man. It's, it's, it's If you start making a couple in a row, you start feeling good, that basket looks bigger than what it really is. And, that's what it was, you know. I was just in the and I got into a groove, and and man, <laughs> and the rest was history, man. But uh, that was a good night for sure for me personally. And Michael Red had had thirty five on the other side for the Bucks. The Bucks end up winning the ball game, but you're right, Bosch went down, played only seven minutes. Uh, you were out there with with Pop So and Mike James and Mo Pete played forty nine minutes that night. I just I just brought up the box score as an overtime game. And, uh, and you know, man, I'm looking, I'm looking at some of the names here, you know, coming off the bench, of course, Eric Williams and your guy, Joey Graham, Matt Bonner played 28. Yeah. Hoffa was in there for a couple minutes. Derek Martin, like, man, this is why we love having these conversations, talking about yeah. guys from, from years gone by, Charlie. And, and your time in Toronto was obviously very brief, but at the same time, yeah. the impact that you had on – on the on the city, on the fan base, and and Charlie, I got to assume the impact that the city and fan base had on you, bringing you into the league as well. What's crazy is that, that like to this day, because I still go up to Toronto. You know, my son lives out there, and uh, to this day, people still show me love. And what's crazy is I only was there for six months, to be honest, I mean for a season. And just the love that the city embracing, man, is it was amazing, man, and. Uh, I mean, still is to this day. Uh, I remember getting drafted to Toronto, not knowing much about Toronto, but um, you know, uh, they just embraced me right away, and and I got I still have that love for Toronto so much. Charlie, does that does that help you with other NBA guys when you hear guys talk about Toronto? I mean, it's changed, but it hasn't. I mean, people who are unaware even though Toronto's won a championship, still don't know much about the city. 
And, yep. you know, some guys come here, I always say they come kicking and screaming, but when they get here, they love it. Um, what do you have to say to other guys around the league who might not have the best things to say about Toronto or are a little bit leery or, or skeptical about coming to Toronto? Well, to this day, Toronto is still still my favorite city. I mean, it's it's so well diverse. Um, it's, it, it's I call it I call it. You know, I'm from New York City. I call it. You know, it's it's very similar to New York, but a lot cleaner and a lot safer. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> Canada, man. I mean, Toronto is just. It's just uh, an amazing city. I mean, there's so much to do. And, and, and what it is is people just don't know much about it. But once you get there, I mean, it's it's a, it's a wonderful experience for sure. You know, Charlie uh, Jones and I were yesterday at a at a, an event for Canada Basketball, uh, announcing a new partnership. Jonesy actually is on the board for Canada Basketball as well, and and the rise of the program on both the men's and women's side. Uh, and and hopefully bigger things to come for for the men this summer at the uh, at the World Championships and and maybe the Olympic Games coming up as well. And the reason I bring that up, you talked about the fact that you know your son is is still up here. Are we gonna see Villanueva yeah. on the back of a Canadian jersey one day or what, Charlie? Yeah, that's the plan. I mean, he's he's about six five, fourteen years old right now. Um, he's he's playing, he's doing well, and hopefully, you know, he can represent the country. I mean, he he got options. That's for sure. <laughs> he yeah. can represent the U.S. He can represent, you know, uh, Canada. But uh, um, yeah, man, he's 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 doing terrific. So I'm happy for him. But Jonesy, the funny thing too is his his son's fourteen and he's six five. My kid's fourteen, and I don't even think he's five six yet. So, <laughs> so I don't think there's going to be a villain away and a Smith playing beside each other anytime soon. <laughs> uh, Charlie, Charlie, you, you have really well, hopefully be like a footer. He might be seven feet, so we'll see. Yeah. Charlie, we've seen the real rise of um, over time the AAU game. Um, yeah. How do, how do you think that's and we've been talking to a lot of people about this when we when we get a hold of them. How do you think that's impacted um, things all the way up to the pro level? Because we see guys coming in, you know, one and done in college, and they're basically one year removed from AAU, and now they're playing yeah, in the NBA. And and I mean, you were a guy that you went to college and you you learned a little bit about life and how to handle your time and and had some older people in your ear. It it. it it's changed a whole lot, though, right now, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. I mean, I've I'm always been a fan of of going to college and maturing and, and, and learning a little bit more about life, you know what I mean? I mean, like you said, like some of these these guys are, are one year removed from uh, AAU and then all of a sudden they're, they're in the league. And sometimes it, it hurts them because – they're not grown enough, stepping into this business, mature enough to step into this business and, and treat it like a business. That's what people don't understand that, you know, NBA is a business when it's all said and done. Um, so, and, and then some of these kids, it hurts them because, you know, they, they, they go to these teams and, and then they sit for a while. They don't know how to handle that, you know. So I've always been a fan of, of maturing and, 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 and playing against, you know, uh, kids more your age versus playing against grown men, but I know there's certain different. There's just there's, there's exceptions to every rule. You know, you have your LeBron James, you have your you know the, the guys that that went out of high school that are special um, that could make that leap without no problem. So uh, 
I've always been a fan of, of, of going to college and, and getting your, you know, your one or two years in and, and just maturing a little bit and, and playing guys more uh, on your level. Hey, Charlie, let me, let me take what you just said and, 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 and kind of twist it a little bit to, to you specifically and, and that first year sure. in the league coming in with Toronto. We, we've often had conversations over the years as well with so many guys about kind of what you were just discussing. You come in, even as a pro, and you've been the best of the best. You've been the top dog in, going back to bitty ball, let alone high school, let alone college. And then you come to the pros, and maybe you're not playing a whole ton. Maybe you're coming off the bench. Maybe you're playing sporadic minutes. Maybe you're barely not even seeing the floor. Or... Maybe you're playing the first full season after a franchise player was traded the season before. Like Vince Carter was dealt December of 2004. The Raptors finish out 05, that campaign, without Vince, obviously. But the first full season without Vince, a new era, obviously a bit of a reset button has been hit, and you're a part of that. I've got to assume that as much as it was personally good for you to come in and get minutes and play heavy minutes, it also was a tough time to be a part of that, even though, again, it was a short time for you, to be a part of that transition as this team was trying to navigate its way forward. Yeah, it was tough. It was tough for me because, you know, in every level, you know, from high school, you know, I won three championships and then go to college, win a championship. You know, I was used to winning and, when I got to Toronto, you know, things were, you know, like you said, it was a transitional period. So I had to adjust. I had to, you know, it, it, it was tough because um, I had to learn how to stay with it. I had to learn not to get frustrated. I had to learn not that my emotions get the best of me. It, it was just so different for me, you know, uh, to being in a situation like that. Um, but I also will say this, you know, like coming off the bench, because I did come off the bench, you know, uh, starting mm-hmm. off. You know, me going to college, preparing for that, because my first year in UConn, I came off the bench, right? And I was still able to produce. So having that under my belt kind of helped me a little bit. But I must say, being that, that first year was tough. It was tough. But all I can do is just go out there and play, you know, play as hard as I can and give the, the, the best effort that I can. Hey, Charlie, how much once you got uh, into the latter stages of your career, and you said it, it was tough the first year, I mean, you come in wide-eyed, and then you quickly realize this is uh, not only is it good basketball, but it's a grown man's business too. How much did you try to help some of the younger guys who were coming in? And I got, you know, I look at it, there are a whole lot of young guys coming in after you, and you had some time in the league. Yeah, I mean, it, what's crazy is I had to learn it was a business right away. I mean, uh, my first year when I got traded, I, I'm gonna tell you guys, Josie and Harry, I was hurt when they traded me. I was hurt. I took that personal um, because I was. I felt like I was so loyal to the to the um, to the team and this, that, and the third. But at the end of the day, it's a business, so I had to learn right away. So. Spreading the word and just, you know, t- telling these kids, telling the, the, the younger kids, you know, that it's a business, man. And I think they, they, they're doing a, a better job now. Um, I think social media has helped. I think, you know, uh, different things has changed over the course of the year that prepare these kids more and, and they have more of an understanding that this is a business. But I try to uh, uh, try to put the word out and just, you know, you treat this as a, as a business at all times. And I always keep that in mind. 
That was our conversation with Charlie Villanueva. Uh, just I, if you want to share a memory of Charlie, that's cool, Jonesy. One thing I wanted to mention is if you don't follow Charlie V on Instagram, uh, I will admit, call it, call it, well, probably just plain out, flat out jealousy. He's a real estate guy now. He and his wife, I believe his wife's a real estate agent. I think maybe Charlie's got his license too. Some of the homes that he posts on his Instagram feed, let alone his own home, and how he's been able to, like, obviously afford some of the finer things in life. But, man, he has a beautiful, beautiful home and some of the stuff that he posts as well. It's, it's like, off the charts. I, I don't know if you follow him, Jonesy, but it's, it's unreal to see. And I suggest, folks, go out and give Charlie a little follow. Also a guy that's still active in a lot of charitable efforts and whatnot as well, but, but I loved catching up with Charlie V. Well, he's, he's done well, and he's a classic example of finding something worthwhile and finding something that's uh, good. And, and, you know, even in real estate, being able to help other people, in a sense, uh, once his career was over. Uh, again, that conversation with Charlie Villanueva was back in March. We had a chance to hook up with a lot of people over the course of Smith & Jones. Remember, we take a little bit of a hiatus through the you know, the uh, late, or, well, I guess early, mid, late summer. So uh, July, August, September, and even through into October before training camp starts, Smith & Jones kind of on a hiatus. But Mike James and Chris Childs and Dwayne Casey, uh, Pascal Siakam, Scotty Barnes on the show. We just recently, in the last couple of weeks, had... Tyler Hansbro joining us on the show as well. Like lots of uh, great, solid interviews that we can mention. Uh, I think I forgot to mention, by the way, too, it was around January 10th, I believe, 10th or 12th, that we had Del Curry. So, again, we, we played Del a couple of moments ago. But we're going to end this best of edition with one of the all-time fan favorites. I feel like we should have dogs barking in the background as we close the show from March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, the junkyard dog, Jerome Williams. But I wanted to hit you off the bat here, Jerome going back to your playing days, but also looking at current day because you're a guy that's still involved in the game, uh, not just as an ambassador, but as a coach as well and as a guy that's working with young kids and, and molding young players, let alone young minds. And here's my jumping off point, my point to this entire question, Jerome. The relationship between player and official, it seems to have kind of reared its head more and more and more this season and I don't know, maybe it's just a fluke, maybe it's just something in the water, but it seems like there has been a growing sort of disconnect or animosity more often than not with officials and players. And it's not like this is new, not like this hasn't happened before, it's not like it's always been kumbaya between players and referees in the NBA, let alone in pro sports in general. But do you find that it has kind of gotten a little bit worse, Jerome, or can you take me back to your playing days and just that that commonality or that that common decency respect and how fine that line can be when dealing with officials well i think it i think it really starts with uh you know the development of players um when you don't have quality coaching at the aau level and at the youth level um i think it becomes a habit a form of habit that is developed and then once it gets all the way to the NBA just rears his ugly head. And I think it does come down to the mutual respect, but the kids have to be taught respect from a young age or else as they get older, they, they, they kind of bring this into the normal dialogue with the referee. And, you know, referees are human. They're going to make mistakes just like players, just like coaches, just like everybody else. Unfortunately, you know, now is when they just start to you know, feed off of those mistakes and don't give anybody the benefit of the doubt. 
But at the end of the day, the man with the stripes and the whistle ultimately has the last say because he can give you a technical foul or he can throw you out the game, which in the NBA costs money, costs revenue, you know, and, you know, dilutes the game and, and causes fans to, you know, miss out on, you know, their better players or, you know, their favorite players who they paid to watch. So I really want to take it back to their origins of <laughs> where it all starts. You know, mm-hmm. coaches at a young age have to make sure when they're teaching their young players to respect the game early by showing them that they respect the game. Like I coach AAU basketball, and my kids never say hear me say anything to the referees, bad or indifferent. They make a mistake, you know, hey, we got to play through it. That's what's going to happen in the college level. That's what's going to happen in high school. It's going to happen at the pro level if you ultimately get that far. So you're going to have to play through the next play. So. You know, if you if you let yourself get out of hand with a referee, you know, you're just costing your teammates and, and the fans, so and the organization for that matter. Right, JY, JY. There there are some examples though at the highest level because all the kids aspire to that. Um, and and we talked about this with your teammate Alvin Williams at times too. There are there's a the respect goes both ways and and. You know, our, our guy Bob Delaney said, when you're an official, a question needs to be answered. A statement can be um, ignored. And and there, there are some examples of some of the guys, because the kids aspire to the highest levels, of players at the highest level that I, I find them, as an old school guy, I got to tell you, I find it difficult to watch because of the the constant complaining and wanting every call. If a shot's missed or the ball's turned over, it wasn't their fault. And I know it it speaks to what you were saying with the accountability, but how do we get the respect back for the game at at the top level so that it will trickle down a bit? Because you're right. You know, I, I think back to your days playing at Georgetown. Big John was on you guys. He never talked to the officials. And when he did, he did it and... He was in charge. You guys didn't say anything. He did the talking. And when there was a mistake, he was on you guys. And that was at, the, at, at a certain level. How do we get that respect back, JYD? Well, again, you got to kind of, you know, work backwards. I think that, you know, um, explaining to, to the youth, hey, listen, um, how much money and revenue you end up losing if you – develop and massage this habit you know um the game of basketball the mental game and the mental space is a muscle that has to be developed and part of that is being able to work through adversity adversity is also not just you missing a shot you know um you know play being called and and you're off it's also when you know referees make calls you have to enter that into the psyche of the player so that he understands this is all a part of the game. You know, you don't get a call, you don't get a foul. You know, while you're complaining, you know, your man is making a layup on the other end. <laughs> or that's a help side that you're not available for because you took the time to, you know, put your hands up instead of running and sprinting back. These are the kind of things you got to teach a player so that you can start to reverse the activities that are going on today. All-time fan favorite, one of the all-time fan favorites, coming back to Toronto. You've come back to the city. 
many, many times, probably hundreds of times since your playing days. What is it that you think of most or the memory or memories that pop into your brain most when you think about your time as a Raptor wearing that jersey and coming back to the city? Man, I think of my good time on uh, the playoffs, you know, game six in Toronto, dunking on Dikembe Mutombo, my Georgetown alumni brother, you know, Mount Mutombo, who was defensive player of the year, three years in a row, Hall of Famer. Um, I think that's one of my fondest memories because of how much, you know, trash talking he he talked during the summers um, at Georgetown, training and working out and finger wagging in my face. So the dog pound lived that night was was barking loud in Toronto, and he wasn't no he wasn't able to overcome that. That was just too much dog pound action, and we went on to win and go to push to Game Seven. Um, so that was probably my fondest memory, I think, of of uh, my time in Toronto. JY, did you you were with a, you were a kind of a young vet on some of those teams? And there were some veteran players. Who was the vet that you looked up to? You know, we had this discussion here about the referees. Who was the guy that you kind of felt you could always go and talk to? He gave good leadership. He might be the guy that say, hey, man, we got to lay off the refs. Uh, who were some of the, the guys that you looked up to at that time when you were here? Oh, man, I think, you know, just looking at it from outside, you know, you got Antonio Davis and Charles Oakley. Now, Charles used to get into it with refs, but a lot of times he just kept his mouth closed, too. Um, and But Antonio Davis, he was a silent assassin. He was never getting technical fouls, really very rare when he did. Um, and he was all business, uh, both of those guys. Both of those guys were business, and that's, and that's, what, that's what you wanted from your veteran because you wanted um, the, the rest of the players to fall in line. And if you have strong leadership at the top um, and, and people who are focused and going out there to play hard and win every night, then you got a, you got a great chance. And those guys were winners. They weren't, they weren't backing down from anybody. Speaking with Jerome Williams, Jerome, I got to tell you my, my, my best story that, or my best memory, and it's been one that's been told many times. When I think of you, it's, it goes to your very first game. I mean, that, that's the trade, is, baby, the trade, the trade. The trade, yeah. hopping in the hopping in the truck and driving down the 401 and getting there through a snowstorm, whatever. I mean, to me, that's one of those stories that as the years go on, it's like the legend grows. Oh, there's, the storm was three feet of snow, and I had chains <laughs> on my tires, and and the window was cracked, so I had to drive with the window down and my head out the window, and, and I, I was driving barefoot with no shoes on. Like, I mean, it's like added layers just get stuck on this thing. But, I mean, that was to me what just – uh, I think enamored fans with you right away. Put put aside the the energy and the personality. It was the fact that this dude hopped in his car and just got here asap. There was no there was no private jet. There was no like taking your time. It was like no, I want to be here and I want to be a part of this. And I think that just kind of set the tone for your time from the jump. That was man. That was that was a great time and it was a great decision. I think that you know my heart was in the right place and I and I wanted to just get there and, and you know be with the new team. I didn't know how to react to being traded. And my first instinct was not to miss practice. So um, that was a good decision. I didn't know it was going to be a snowstorm. So it was <laughs> It was uh, not three feet, but it was about two. It was about two feet. <laughs> but it was, it, was, it, was, uh, it was a long drive um, because of the snow. 
Um, but you know, uh, it, I got there and I got to practice and, you know, and, and the team respected that they respected the fact that, you know, Hey, here's a guy who, you know, <laughs> you know, got in his car and drove after the trade like that, that, that let the team know I'm, I'm serious about my work. You don't have to talk about it. You know, you, you showed through your actions and, um, the fans showed me appreciation for that decision. Um, and I would have made it again, you know, cause that, that I was, I was excited and, uh, you know, and that's, that's how you react to, you know, when you're, when you're traded, cause you got pain on one side, um, you know, leaving a city like Detroit where my dog town was originated and going to a new city. That was our conversation with Jerome Williams again back on March 17th. And I know we touched on it in the interview in that portion of the interview, Jonesy, that we just played. But, you know, beyond the beyond the headband, beyond the high socks, beyond the barking and the, and the, the, the waving of the towel from the bench and the energy on the floor and everything else, you cannot have any other memory in your head of Jerome Williams than as he spoke about driving in that snowstorm from Detroit and just showing up the next day ready to go. Like that's, that to me was that set the tone for who he was and what he was going to be with this team. And, and wasn't that him? Like he was that kind of guy. So if there was a guy that you, you know, as you lined them all up and say, which guy would drive through a snowstorm to get there to play for his team? I, I got to believe that JYD would be right near, if not at the top of the list. Folks, it was nice to look back on some of these interviews, some of these top interviews and moments over the last year or so. I think we might be doing something similar for our final show of 2023, but I'm not sure. So call that either a tease or just call that, eh, I don't know. We're going to roll together with the producers, with our crew, figure it out for the final edition next week. But in the meantime, for those that are celebrating, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays to everyone, and we will speak with you again before the ball drops, before the calendar flips to 2024. Thanks again to our entire crew that has brought this show with you over the course of 2023 and our producers, Mark Boffo and Austin Mackey. For Paul Jones, I'm Eric Smith. Thanks for tuning in to the best of edition, the holiday edition of Smith and Jones.